here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hey Bianca, here are two fabulous writing opportunities for your listeners. First, write around the world. It's a chance for you to experience the magic of the AWA method delivered by a wide variety of facilitators. An opportunity to generate surprising new writing and to hear immediately what's working in the piece. And it's a fundraiser that supports the social justice work of Amherst writers, funding the training of facilitators to work with underserved and unheard populations, including Black, Indigenous, and other racialized people. A chance to do good work both creatively and socially. Workshops are by donation, 10, 20, 30 bucks. Go to amherstwriters.org. Click on the Write Around the World link. Workshops are offered at all times throughout the month of May. And as for this summer, 
Haven't you always wanted to spend a week diving into your writing during the day, then diving into a lake afterwards with drinks on the dock after that? Well, come to the Halliburton School of the Arts this summer, a three-hour drive north of Toronto. So worth the effort. This program is operated by Fleming College and is open to writers of all levels of experience. It is a renowned program in an idyllic setting. I will be running a workshop August 15th to 19th using the AWA method. Please go to my website, susiewheelahan.ca, S-U-S-I-E-W-H-E-L-E-H-A-N.ca. Click on Available Workshops. You'll find lots of information about the programs and accommodation possibilities. Come on, dive in. Today's guest is Sarah Camden, who is an executive editor at St. Martin's Publishing Group, where she publishes a list of upmarket commercial fiction and narrative nonfiction. Her authors include New York Times bestsellers, Rachel Hawkins and Therese Ann Fowler, as well as critically acclaimed novelists, Karen Tanabe, Carola Lovering, Virginia Hume, Rachel Kapelki-Dale, and more. Prior to joining SMPG, she spent nearly a decade at Atria Books, where she edited best-selling authors Taylor Jenkin-Reed, Lisa Jewell, Jennifer Weiner, Sarah Buchanan, and more. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Canton. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It is a huge pleasure having you here. Having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Our podcast is very popular among writers who are in the beginning stages of their careers. And we had a retreat back in January, and we had an acquisitions editor there with us, the very lovely Sally Kim. And everyone had so many questions for Sally. And so in preparation for today's episode, I do have some questions from them, which we'll leave till the end. But I, of course, want to start with the ballerinas. The Ballerinas was the inaugural selection for the Books with Hooks book club. All our listeners are huge, huge fans. Our discussion ended at 11.20 p.m. on a Thursday. It was embarrassing. Nobody wanted to go to bed. All we wanted to do was talk about this book. So I wanted to ask you, could you please take us back to the day when you got that email from Sarah Fair, Rachel's literary agent? And could you please try to remember and try to tell us how that experience was reading that pitch and what made you fall in love with it? I think that I actually gasped when I got the email because I was a ballerina when I was growing up. I loved ballet. I grew up loving ballet. And her pitch was essentially a novel about toxic friendship, female ambition, set in the ballet world in Paris. And it was like, ding, 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 ding. Like, I want all of these things. I love them all. That's amazing. But then I actually scrolled down and I saw Rachel's name and I had had her memoir that she co-wrote with her best friend several years back on submission when I was a baby editor at Atria and I had loved it and I had been the underbidder for it ultimately so I didn't get to buy it but I was familiar with her writing and I had thought the world of her so it was an even bigger sort of surprise and delight really at that moment so I got the email on an app you know I think it was a Thursday afternoon maybe it was a Wednesday afternoon I read it pretty much overnight and it was one of those submissions where I was a little bit holding my breath and just hoping that it didn't fall apart and that I loved it all the way through because I I had that feeling really from the first page that it was a pretty special one. The magic sparks. That's what we all want. That's what we all want. Okay, so 
you obviously loved it because you didn't just buy it. You preempted it. Could you please explain what preempting is for our listeners? Because one of the things we often say in the podcast is this is a really competitive industry. And in many ways, it is essentially institutionalized gambling. A preempt is a very is a very good way to explain that, I think. So how do you feel about that? Could you tell us what a preempt is and why you decided that. to preempt institutionalized on? gambling? Yes, that's yes. how I call it. <laughs> yes, yes, it is institutionalized gambling. So for me, it was a book that I, I read really quickly because I, I just loved, I loved the pitch. I really had a crystal clear vision for the book and I was able to get other readers in-house, um, the people that I needed to read, to read quickly. And that is, every house does it differently, but at SMP, it is really important for me to have other readers on board. So everyone read quickly and everyone really saw the potential. And I just felt like this was a book that I was uniquely, I had the right vision for it. I felt like Rachel had already sort of known who I was because I had been the bidder on her, the underbidder on her previous book. And I thought that this was one that I wanted to really take that shot at early. I think that there are some situations where if you just know, you know, uh, to sort of use the language of, of romance, which I think is oftentimes what we do when we talk about acquisitions, where, you know, you only, you just have to find the right one and <laughs> there's a, there's a match for everyone out there. This is one of those cases where it just felt like this was a book that I was meant to edit. And I really hoped that that Rachel would feel like I was the person who was meant to edit it. So I, so that is why I made the choice to preempt. It was kind of a combination of logistics of having some speed on my side and feeling like this was, this was a book that was a little bit meant for me and that we were going to be a good match. For our listeners, what does a preempt even mean? A preempt means that an editor is making an offer for a project before it has the chance to go to auction. So it's essentially saying to the agent, I, we love this so much. We really want to publish it. Please don't consider other people. We want to take it off the table. It can sometimes mean a higher offer than, than might happen at an auction. It doesn't necessarily mean that, at least in my experience, but it is saying that you don't want to open up the floor to other people competing. You want to come in and you want to take it take it off the table, take it out from submission. So if it is accepted, the agent has to go to the other people who, who were reading and say, I'm so sorry, we've taken the preempt, tough luck. Um, and I've been on the receiving end of that and it can't, it's not always fun, but it is one of those situations where it's really about speed in a lot of cases where if you, if you move quickly, you can do that. And some agents and authors might decide, you know what, this isn't the offer that we're, that we're ready for this. We, we think that there are other editors out there who might be a better fit. We want to try our luck at an auction and, and that can often be the right choice for people. I think in this particular case, we made a strong offer. And I think that Rachel and Sarah felt that me and SMP would be the perfect home for, for the book. And I think we proved them right. I would say you definitely proved them right. And I'll support my claim in 10 seconds. But before I do, the interesting thing to me about what you said is that, yes, it's gambling on your side because you're deciding to go to the agent and say, take this off the table. I'm going to make an offer, a really strong one, hopefully that you know, you'll know you say yes to. It's also gambling on the agent and of course the author side because they have to go like, I've been in the situation where you're like, okay, so I just got a preempt. What do I do? Do I say yes to this preempt? What if I can get more money at auction? Not that money is the only factor, but it is one factor. 
what if, you know, this editor ends up moving to another house and, you know, the whole chemistry that they had in the beginning isn't even relevant anymore because they'll move. What if this? What if that? So it's so many what ifs. And it just goes to show that publishing really is a bonkers industry where you have to, yes, fall in love because the romance analogy is also very applicable, but at the same time, kind of play at a casino table. So it's just a lot of fun. But back to my earlier point about why Rachel obviously made the right choice. I want to read something for everyone, not just for Sarah, for our listeners too. This comes from The Ballerinas. With profound thanks to Sarah Canton, whose brilliant vision for the novel infused it with new life and whose unparalleled editorial skills shepherded me through this process with grace and insight. I can't imagine a better editor for this book. So there you have it from the mouth of Rachel herself, obviously, so nice. by me. Mm-hmm. So what is this new life that you infused into the book? We must know. What is this vision you had? And so- did you share the vision with the readers in house before they read it or after? A little bit before. And, and a lot of it was really, I mean, it, it really came down to Rachel's work. I, I did have the vision, quote unquote, but she did all the hard work of executing it. I would say that this was one of those books where, and I think this is not uncommon in debut novels. And I think that Rachel would agree with me that authors work on their debuts over and over and over. They spend a lot of time with their debut novel. Um, not necessarily as much with a second book or a third book because they might be under contract already and it might the, the process might be moving along. But debut can be the book that you just live with for a while before it actually goes out on submission. And what can happen sometimes, I think, is that so much of the backstories of these characters and so much of what makes them who they are and why they do what they do is living in your head, but it's not necessarily on the page. And I think what the case was with the ballerinas was I could see that there was this connective tissue that wasn't coming through on the page. And the read felt super atmospheric, which I loved, super vibey, which I loved, really suspenseful, really tautly paced. But there were these pieces missing that linked everything together. And so the evolution of the main character, Delphine, didn't feel quite as rounded out as it could have. And why she made the choices that she did, why she was drawn to the men that she was drawn to, the kind of texture of her relationship with her friends, it wasn't as developed as I think it ultimately is in the final product. So for me, it was really the analogy that I kept on using with Rachel was, we need to zoom in on certain moments more and we need to zoom out on other moments. And then, and then there's some pieces in between that we need to add that aren't there because it just felt that the she had lived inside the manuscript for so long that she wasn't able to see where some of the holes were or where we felt too close and we needed to back up a little bit or where we were really too far out and needed to go in. So in that way, it wasn't a an edit where I said, you know, the middle third of the book is a mess. We have to replot the whole thing or the ending doesn't work at all. We need to come up with a new ending. It was really a lot about the storytelling in a way that made it to some extent a more difficult edit, but also a more um, nuanced edit. And I think that the work that she did on it ultimately was even better than I had imagined. I love that. One question I have, when you read it, did you know the genre right away? I did, but I have to say that I am an editor who is finds herself drawn to things that sometimes straddle genre or are not quite as obviously one particular genre. So for me, this felt like in that psychological suspense space, 
that it had the components of a novel that could really thrive there. But I also felt like it was perhaps more upmarket in some ways, that it was really voice driven. I had the comps in my head and I had this sort of like X meets Y mashup in my head, but I definitely recognized that it wasn't, it was not derivative in any way to me, which is something that I really look for. Um, I, I don't want to, it's always nice to be able to, to categorize fiction, but if it's too obviously <laughs> like something else, then it's probably not for me. It could be for someone else for sure, but it's not as likely to be for me. I absolutely love that insight. I think it's genius. So the reason why I'm asking this question is because as soon as we were done with the presentation where I spent two hours rambling on, showing slides, using the zooming in, zooming out technique, just as you said about like, look, look at how they did this scene and look at how brilliant it is. But now let's zoom out and look at the major dramatic question. The first question that everyone asked me was, Cece, what genre is this? Like, I'm not clear what genre this is. And when I asked Rachel this question, when I interviewed her and her agent, Sarah Fair, Rachel was like, I had no idea what the genre was. I just wrote the story. Now, that was Sarah's job to figure out. And I just thought that that was great. True. And I do think that there are a lot of debut authors who feel that way. And and I think that that's okay. I think that it, it can be really helpful to know, to have a sense of genre when you're querying an agent. And I think it is very much on an agent too, to help an author figure out what the space is. And But part of an agent's job also is to, is to know the editors that are going to be right for something and to know that editors can move through different genres and can, and can acquire for different spaces. And Sarah knew that this would be a good fit for me, but yeah, I think that genre is one of those things that it's a tool and it is as useful or as prohibitive as any tools can be. You know, you're, you can't use a screwdriver when you need a hammer and you can't use a hammer when you need a screwdriver. And sometimes you have to, you have to sort of use it to the extent that it, it makes sense for you and then let it fall away when it doesn't. That makes so much sense. I, I love that. So, I mean, I think it's fair to say this. I don't think you'll disagree with me. Publishing is very competitive. This is a very competitive industry. Not everyone who wants to get traditionally published is able to. What we try to do at the podcast is demystify as much as possible, be super transparent, super honest, and still be very encouraging because we believe that you can be optimistic and realistic at the same time. One of the questions our listeners had was, what are the numbers on your end? Like how many manuscripts more or less do you get a year from agents and how many do you end up buying? Oh, sorry, I should add, how many do you offer on and how many do you end up buying? If you even know, maybe you don't have the stats. Yeah, I would say it's roughly around 350 to 400 submissions a year for me. And that's submissions that I'm that I'm getting and that I'm reading. And there are some submissions that I land in my inbox and I know right away it's not for me. It could be for someone else that I work with and I say, you know, please try this person instead. It varies per year how many books I'm acquiring or offering on, but I would say that ultimately I am publishing no more than 12 original titles a year. So the math there is is pretty competitive. Um, I would say of the things that I'm offering on, there's maybe somewhere between five and 10 products a year that I am in an auction for that I don't win, that I wanted to make an offer for, but got preempted, that type of thing. I try to win when I'm when I'm actually bidding. And I it is very, I don't usually get to the offer stage unless I'm really, really head over heels for something. So that's when I really try to pull out all the guns. If anyone needs some encouragement, perhaps you could try applying to Harvard. 
or Yale or some other Ivy League I know, university. I know. It's a very, it's a, it's the numbers are tough. The numbers are really tough. There's a lot of projects out there and there's a lot that I have to say no to, but I would also say, and I haven't done this, but I could do this looking at my, you know, my submissions log. A lot of the books that I pass on go somewhere else. You know, they weren't necessarily for me. They were for another editor. And and that is a big piece of it. It's just not everything is the right fit for, for a particular editor. And it's not to say that an agent is doing something wrong if it's if they send it to me and it ends up not being the right fit. You know, there's it's really hard to predict what will hit with an editor and what won't. It's more art than science, unfortunately. But there are external factors as well. Maybe someone on my team didn't love it as much as I did. Maybe there's another book on our list that's actually quite similar. Maybe the timing isn't great. You know, maybe there's a book coming that has already sold in the UK and the UK is going to publish it in six months and that's not going to work for me. And so I'm going to step aside because it's just not going to, it's not going to be the right fit. There are a lot of other reasons why someone might pass on something besides, oh, they just didn't like it. You know, it, it, it oftentimes goes much deeper than that. Absolutely. So, Especially since, you know, the submissions you get have already gone through a process where an agent has taken this on and, you know, possibly, probably the beta readers and critique partners, even before the agent came in, also added value to the manuscript. It's, I love what you said about it being more art than science, and it's absolutely not personal. In fact, there's no such thing as a book that goes out on submission and doesn't get at least one rejection. This is also, you know, Sarah's, these these are Sarah's numbers, um, and, you know, for everyone listening, and it's one editor and one imprint. We, when agents go out with things, we we target various editors at various imprints. It's one per imprint for all the imprints that apply to your project. So it's also not that bad. I'd also say too that there are a lot of books that I might get that I really like and I can really see are going to be great and someone else is going to publish beautifully, but I just don't have the vision, which sounds like a really sort of woo-woo phrase, but it really just comes down to, I don't quite see how to position it or launch it. I feel like it's maybe not the thing that's actually our strength. Or in the case of Rachel, I really had a, a sense of clarity about how to edit this book, about what the book needed. And there are times where I can see that the writing is beautiful, that the author might have a platform, that they might have a great advanced blurb, that they that their story is really worthy in, in a variety of ways. But if I don't know how to get in there and really take it from excellent to double excellent, then then I'm not going to be the right the right fit. And again, to use a to use a, a romance phrase like rejection is a form of protection sometimes like it can be actually a gift to not to have someone say you know what this is not this is not something that I can do justice to so I'm going to step aside and I know that step aside is one of those phrases that editors use and overuse like cheering from the sidelines I know I say that I do I do but I mean it I really do I I think oh and and um, we take it with that absolutely like we can see like sometimes an editor will follow up and be like I'm so happy that this found a home after we announced something on publishers marketplace and it's it's lovely it no one likes giving out rejection like no I, I, I never feel that way at all yeah it's really it's it's much more about about things finding the right the right home and there are books that i might have loved on submission and and i didn't get you know if i lost an auction or something like that and i can see where they landed and i can think you know what that person that house they published it probably better than i could have because i didn't have that vision for it that this person has shown that they have so i do so think there you that go. things yeah i do think that things work out but it can be a very long and challenging road and i have 
immense respect for for the writers who her who persevere. It's not for the faint of heart, but it's I I feel like the rejection it helps at least it I think it helps to think that the rejection is not personal and the rejection is across the board. Like agents get rejected all the time, editors get rejected all the time, and it can be a gift. Like like and I, and truly, I mean, aside from you know even the books that have multiple bidders in an auction, there are still those books still got rejections. Like every big book that you know that you love was rejected by somebody at some point, probably multiple people at multiple points by agents, by other editors, you know, every, every book, even the ones that you hold the closest to your hearts have been rejected in some form or another. Absolutely. Absolutely. So speaking of rejection, is that the hardest part of your job dealing with the rejection or is there some other, cause that's another question we got. It's like, what is the hardest part about being an acquisitions editor? And I will preface this question by saying that a lot of times people picture that your life is absolutely like enviable because you wake up every day and all you, you spend your whole day reading. And I know that's not the case. So yeah, tell us a little bit about that. What's the regular day for you? It is not the case. You know, rejection is, is tough and I don't relish it at all, but I would say that what definitely can feel harder is the, is doing this with, with sales. I mean, to bring a book to market is very, very difficult across the board. And there are a lot of hurdles along the way. And that's partly why as an acquisitions editor, you have to be so picky, honestly, because the journey from that point on is very, very challenging. I think, you know, probably the hardest part of of my job is just when the book is wonderful, when the marketing plan is great, when the publicity is fantastic, when all of the things that could come together come together and it just doesn't break through sales-wise in the way that you had hoped that it would. I think that that is really, it's really hard it's, and it's sort of heartbreaking. And it doesn't mean that the book was a failure by any means. There's lots of metrics of success. And I think a big part of my job is having multiple metrics of success for authors and for my colleagues. I think it's really important to see authors as having long-term careers. It's not just one book, it's building a career and building a brand in most cases. So the heartbreak of seeing something have a lot of the pieces, but not fully come together in the market in the way that you believed that it could. To be totally candid, that is the hardest part. For authors in that position, what advice would you give to someone who did get published and they're booked in sell as well as they thought it would? How would you best advise them since you've been on the editorial side of that? The best thing you can do is go back and write your next great book. The only way out is through and you just keep going. You keep going. You write another great book. That book could hit with people in a way that the first one didn't. And then people could find the first book. Most often, it's not a reflection on the book. It's just a reflection on how people have found it or whether they have found it. And I think in the industry, we are we really weight quite heavily performance in the first week, month, year. That's really how we look at things. We are looking to see if it can get a lot of pre-orders to get on the bestseller list. We want to see if a book has earned out in the first year. There's all this sort of hubbub around the first year. And books have very long lives and readers find books when they find books and when they need to find books. And sort of as an example, The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, I published that book at Atria. It did quite nicely. It was a book of the month club pick early days of book of the month. It did not hit the bestseller list in hardcover. It 
got lots of nice reviews. It went into paperback in 2018. It came out in hardcover in 2017, paperback 2018. Great, great, great. And then boom, last February, 2021, it hit the Times bestseller list and it's been on ever since. And it became part of that. A huge part of that was TikTok. It became a huge book talk book, but it just was discovered. And Taylor has written books, you know, since Seven Husbands, she's been out there. She wrote an an amazing book after Seven Husbands, which I didn't publish, but I love Daisy Jones and the Six. And then another book after that. But that particular book did not come out of the gate on fire. And now it is, it's huge. And so that can happen. Books can be discovered years and years later. Similar thing happened with Lisa Jewell with Then She Was Gone. That book hit the bestseller list in paperback, you know, after it had been out for a few months, it didn't work in hardcover necessarily in quite as big of a way. And then it, and then it really took off in paperback. So there can be the books that just really don't take off for a little while and then they will. And then there are times where the book doesn't take off and an author goes and they write another book and things build from there. The really the best advice is to keep going and to remember that books don't expire. They are around. Readers can find them and the right readers will find them. Books don't expire. I love that. I remember Andrea Bartz tweeting about this, talking about disappointment that she had in her career. And instead of feeling feeling sorry for herself and allowing that to paralyze her, what she did is she wrote, we were never here. And that was a huge breakout success. And she called it a just keep swimming business. She said, publishing is a just keep swimming business. And of course, little songs sort of playing in my head. And I so believe that. That is exactly what it is. Exactly that. And I think one of my more um, micro pieces of advice to authors, a lot of times, particularly novelists, is before that first book comes out, start working on your second book because you want to have you want to have a project that you can be escaping into and you want to have something going that is sort of untouched mentally by the results, quote unquote, results of your first book. And I think it's really useful to have that next book in progress in some capacity before anyone, you know, out in the media, out in the world, on Goodreads, from PW is is commenting on your book to just have that other project that's still just for you and that you can retreat into and remember that this is why you are writing. I love that. I love that so much. What are your thoughts on unlikable protagonists? I love unlikable protagonists. See, my theory on unlikable protagonists is that really no protagonist is unlikable if you reveal to a reader why they are the way they are. And if the reader feels like they are along for the ride, if they feel like they are on the same team as this protagonist. And I think that that is the essential thing. I think that a an actual unlikable protagonist is someone who is pushing the reader away, is keeping that at arm's distance, who is not letting in the reader to their choices and to their psychology. That is the most brilliant answer I have ever heard about unlikable protagonists. I am being very, very honest here, and I'm going to steal it and use it because I'm a huge fan of what people call unlikable protagonists, but they're not actually unlikable. I'm rooting for them, right? Like that's what you want. I want that vulnerability. I want that backstory, not necessarily on the page, but I want to understand, I want to be inside their head and understand and root for them despite their flaws because- Honestly, that's what makes us human. It's the characters who are nice and go boring that I don't like because I'm like, so why do I want to spend time with you? Like, you're not interesting. Like, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I I'm think that there's that. a certain amount of likable characters being presented as ones that are really charming or really funny or really 
warm in some way. And I think that that those characters can be really likable and can really pull you in. But I think that it's the it's the characters who present a certain way to the world, but then are revealing something else to the reader that are so compelling to me. And that is where I think people assume that a character might be unlikable. But actually, if you're doing the work to really show the reader why this person is the way they are and to create that sense of intimacy with the reader, where the reader understands this person and the rest of the world doesn't understand them. If you can create that kind of sense of camaraderie, that really bridges the gap, I think. This is the most perfect answer ever. Seriously, I'm going to print it and frame it and totally steal it and pass it on. That's Great. Great. It's it's open, <laughs> it's open for stealing. Open for stealing. <laughs> so for our very last question, I wanted to ask, could you please recommend us a book? It can be a book that you're excited to read but haven't started yet. It could be a book that you've just devoured. It can be anything. We like to really support authors here. So please, the stage is yours. Make two recommendations. As many as you want. I just interviewed Jennifer Close and she was like, oh, a book you say, here's seven. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm gonna make two recommendations. One of them is mine, I will say up front that I edited and one of them is not. So one that I did not edit, but that I absolutely adored was The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead. I yes, so good. Okay. I loved, I loved that book so much. And I loved her first two books. I, I read both of them and loved them. But this book to me was just, I think everything that I fell in love with reading for, it was sweeping. It was epic. It was surprising. It was engrossing. It was, I both like couldn't put it down, wanted to get back to it, didn't want it to end. I felt all the feelings. I just really, really loved that book. And it kind of felt old fashioned to me in some ways. I think some of the storytelling, it was just so, it wasn't rushed. It wasn't hurried. It was, it was really like you are along for this journey. And there was something just delightful about that. It didn't feel gimmicky in any way. I just, I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. So I definitely recommend Great Circle, Maggie Shifton. My second recommendation is a book that I edited. So I have to, I have to acknowledge my own bias here, but I'm recommending it because it really goes to the genre question. It is it is biased book- or is it just you having good taste? Just saying. <laughs> I mean, I would like to think, I would like to think that I definitely have good taste, but it is the, the title is The Ark and the author is Tori Henwood Hohen. It came out in early February of 2022. And this is a book that really defies genre, I have to say. And it's a smart thinking woman's rom-com in a lot of ways, but with the satirical edge to it. And it is set in New York City and it imagines a matchmaking service that will find you your perfect mate. And it guarantees that the person that it pairs you with is your ideal partner. And it is so wonderful. It is. So that's the top line story. But behind that is the story of startup culture, of fourth wave feminism, of friendship, of pets that become like family members, of what it means to actually try and optimize love. Is that even possible? It really is absolutely hilarious, completely thought-provoking. It skewers so many aspects of modern life, but it's really, really hopeful. It just feels like such a book for our times where it hits on all of those nerves and 
a lot of things will feel really familiar in a really clever way. And there's also this just timeless story of wanting to find love and how challenging that is. And also how sometimes we make it harder than it needs to be. I love that book, The Ark. And that is the name of the matchmaking service. It's called The Ark. And it's called The Ark because they are architecting great relationships. So I have to read it now. And you did such a great job of explaining it. Obviously you edited the book. It's your book, but like now I have to read it. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been This was so much fun. I am so honored. Thank you. Thank you. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast-track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please 
please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the author of four novels. Her thought-provoking debut on Grace is about turning 40. The Balance Project is about work-life balance and was inspired by the Balance Project interview series she started in 2014. The Subway Girls is historical fiction about the fascinating Miss Subway's advertising program. And We Came Here to Shine is also historical fiction set at the 1939 NYC World's Fair. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Pop Sugar, Writer's Digest, and Glamour. She's also a frequent speaker at women's groups, corporations, and book clubs about her novels and work-life balance. She grew up in Los Angeles, graduated from the University of Pennsylvania, and now lives just out of New York City with her husband and their three teenage sons. It's my pleasure to welcome Susie Orman Schnell. Susie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Bianca. I, I listen to every episode, so it's such an honor to be part of this with you. So thank you so much. I'm always surprised when I hear from writers who are established who who listen to the podcast, because in all honesty, you know, I did begin the podcast to help emerging writers. So it's always really, really gratifying to hear that authors who are already traditionally published find the show to be valuable as well. Yeah. And I even listened to Carly and Cece's section, even though I'm not querying, because I learn something every single time. I don't obviously need the input to a query letter, but the first five pages, what's important to the hook, all of that I learned something from. And then, of course, the interviews, which I really love so much. Thank you. It's, it's interesting because our stats have shown that most of our listeners listen to half of the episode. And I still have yet to establish if it's the books with hooks part or if it's the author interview part or what that kind of breakup is. So I always find that quite interesting. All right. So you've had a really interesting journey in terms of your publishing journey to publication. So will you take us through that from the beginning? Because I know you said you couldn't get an agent for your first novel. Yeah. So I started writing right about when I turned 40, which was back in 2010. And I had been writing freelance for magazines and websites and thought, okay, well, my next challenge would be to write a novel. Why not? So I started doing some research and ended up taking a class and was somewhat petrified on that first day. And I told myself, all you have to do is get through the first day of class. And then after the class, I thought, all you have to do is get through the first assignment of homework. And if you don't want to do it, then you can stop. And I'm not somebody who's very fearful. It just was the idea of writing an entire book. It seemed like an overwhelming task to me. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to try and tackle that. But I went to the class and I did the homework and I went to the next class and did the homework. And by the end of the course, I had written pretty much the first draft of my first novel. And then I finished it and did an edit with somebody and tried to get an agent. And I spent a year trying to get an agent and heard the same thing over and over again, which was the writing was good, the plotting was good, the characters were good, but it was just too quiet for the women's fiction space. Nobody thought they could sell it. And now I understand what that means. At the time, I thought, well, there's tons of other books that have this same sort of storyline, but now I get it. And everything I believe does happen, most things happen for a reason. And I feel that I learned so much by going through all of these different iterations of the publishing process and publishing journey. So 
I, at that point, realized that I could either put that book in the proverbial drawer or self-publish it. And so I self-published it, which meant that I then spent another few months learning everything I could about self-publishing, which back in 2012 was still somewhat of a Wild West. It wasn't as sort of directed as it was today. And I hired another book interior designer is what they're called. I hired a cover designer and I self-published it. And so in 2013, my book went live on Amazon, which I thought was just the very best thing that could ever happen. And at that point, someone had told me that I should speak to a publicist about book publicity. And so I did. And that was Crystal Patriarch at Book Sparks. And Crystal at that point wasn't taking on a lot of self-published novels, but she said, I'll have a look at it. And when she came back to me, she said that she loved it. She got some second reads at her company. They loved it. And they were starting an imprint. And would I be interested in being one of the first books published with Spark Press? And I said, yeah. So we pulled it off of Amazon. It got a new cover, got a new edit, and it published in 2014 with Spark Press. And I loved that. It was a very collaborative experience on the cover on the marketing, everything. And I decided when I wrote my second novel, which was The Balance Project, to go back to Spark Press because I really enjoyed working with them. I didn't even try to get an agent for that book. But then when I wrote my third novel, The Subway Girls, I thought, well, why don't I try this time to get an agent? You know, I've worked with an independent press for my first two books. Wouldn't it be really, really great to try and be traditionally published? I think that that was a goal of mine. I always liken it to having a baby, that if you have a C-section, at the end, you still get your baby, but you feel a little bit cheated out of the birth experience. So the same thing with a book. I felt a little bit cheated out of the publishing experience, even though I still had a book. So I wrote The Subway Girls, and what I did, which I think you guys talk about a lot on your show, is I did hire a professional editor before I queried. And I know that there is a lot of, I wouldn't say controversy, but there's a lot of discussion about that because it is expensive and it is something that could lead you in the wrong direction if it ends up that none of the agents that you query liked the way that the editor editor took you. But I really felt that based upon what I'd known about querying is that it had to be my very best foot forward because agents as you all talk about, want any reason to turn down your query. So I did hire that professional editor. It was an incredible experience. She really helped me a lot. And I queried. And I will tell you how I actually got my agent, which I think is another interesting story, because I was I knew some authors. And so I was able to use those connections to say, so-and-so suggested that I reach out to you. And then with my query, which maybe gets your query a read, but that maybe is all that it gets. But I was going to be in the slush pile for so many other agents. So, But then I found that Carly Waters who was an agent that I was very interested in, was offering a course through, I believe it was Writer's Digest. And it was a query writing course. And the course was an hour about how to write a query letter. And included in the fee was that Carly would review your query letter and give her personal comments. And so I thought, well, this is a really great way to get in front of Carly Waters, who I would love to have as my agent. And it worked. So Carly ended up reading my query letter and she requested the manuscript. And so that was how I was able to 
work with Carly. I did get that call, which was the best, uh, offering me representation. And I felt like I had just won the lottery because not only was I now an agented author and could toss around the term, well, my agent said, well, my agent said, which is so much fun. It does not get old, but that I'd be getting to work with Carly, who I thought was really dynamic and wonderful. And that was five years ago. And now to see Carly I, she's just a powerhouse, and I am so honored to be able to be her client. So Carly did another edit on the book, and it didn't need as much because it had gotten that professional edit. She put it out on submission, and we got an offer. We got a lot of rejections, and I really feel at this point that I don't mind talking about those. I think it's really important because I think there's too much in publishing that people don't talk about. And it's so important to talk about the the warts and all. So we did get rejections and they were a bummer, but I feel like my skin has thickened so much. And then we got an offer and it was a two book deal. And so I was able to write The Subway Girls and also my fourth novel, We Came Here to Shine, in that contract. There was so much there to unpack. I've been scribbling notes because I, I want us to kind of touch on a few of these things. One of which is when you said you worked with that editor up front, and I agree, you know, it can be incredibly expensive, which means barriers to entry for people who can't afford it. It's actually something that I'm considering setting up a fund, you know, for people who absolutely can't afford that kind of thing. And occasionally we do some kind of contest whereby they submit their work and we pick one as the winner and then we pay for that for that professional developmental edit for them because I, I think it does just elevate the work. It just pushes them through that last bit of the door that they can't make it through themselves. But when you decided on that editor, how did you approach that? Because I've had experiences in the past where I've gotten editorial notes from professional people that honestly kind of made me want to give up writing. Like I wanted to curl into the fetal position and just cry for days on end because it just, they were not the person who should have been giving me feedback for whatever reason. So I think it's important for people who do go, okay, I've been able to put the money together. Let me find someone that it's integral that they get a really good fit. So how did you, did you just luck out with that editor? How did you go about finding that editor and making sure you were going to be a good fit? I actually used Nicola Krauss, who was the author of The Nanny Diaries, the co-author of The Nanny Diaries. And I don't remember now how I found out about her, but she had started a company that was doing manuscript edits for people, book doctor work as well. And I found out about that and I reached out to her and I thought, okay, well, if she is the author of The Nanny Diaries, she certainly knows how to write. I also knew that she had connections in the industry and was willing to utilize them for clients who she thought she could make introductions for. And so I reached out to her and I thought that she was incredible. She really was able to drill down into what needed to happen for the structure of my book. There was one character whose goal, motivation, conflict was just not strong enough. And she gave me the tools and the information that I needed to actually elevate it, as you said, to the next level. And so perhaps I lucked out that I was able to choose the right person. And I've referred Nicola to so many other aspiring authors. But I do think it's hard because you just do not know what you're going to get when you hire an editor. But I think that it's really important that it's somebody, I mean, doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who has published work, 
but it certainly would help if that person has worked in a professional capacity for as an editor. I don't know if that's not something I should say, because I'm sure that there are really effective professional editors out there who haven't been employed by a publishing company. I don't know. Yeah, there's all different certifications that editors can go through. Many of them work in freelance capacity, which means they haven't worked for like the the bigger publishers. I know that Readsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com, they've got a ton of publishing professionals on their site, depending on who you're looking for. So like you said, if you're self-publishing and you maybe need a cover designer, you can find them there or someone who can design the inside copy and get it ready to be published on Kindle or whatever the case may be is. And they have developmental editors, they have proofreaders there. So people can go there and request various quotes. And for me, I think before I worked with an editor, I'd maybe give them five pages and sort of see what their feedback would be on those five pages to see if if we kind of align. I don't know how many of them are prepared to do that, but certainly it is important that it's a good match. I'm so glad that you lucked out there. Something else you said about how you did the course with Carly, who at that point as part of the course was looking at query letters. I don't think that's something Carly would do today. So I think she was doing that when she was more junior. And again, this is something that I want to say to many listeners out there, because we all want the big name agents, right? We're like, oh, I want I want this agent. I want this agent because they're so big. But I feel like when some of these agents are more junior, they are prepared to go that extra mile. And they are prepared to do these kinds of things that they don't have time for later when they are more successful. So for our listeners, look out for these kinds of things for other agents, like when they're giving course, when they're prepared to look at query letters, etc. Don't discount the more junior or less experienced agents, because I think they are more hungry than agents who've got a whole list of really successful clients. In terms of your quiet novel, you said your first one was too quiet. Was that something you guarded against when you were writing The Subway Girls? And how did you approach that to not make the same mistake again? Yes, I definitely tried to not make the same mistake again. And I learned so much from writing that book and then learning how to write a book. That was my first attempt. I'm sometimes almost embarrassed to even mention that book as one of the books I've written, even though it's still enjoyable and people like it. But as I've written more and more books, I study more. I'm a student at heart. I love to learn. And so I read so many craft books and I read so many blogs about writing. And I understand now about raising stakes and about how there needs to be, I mean, I Save the Cat for me has been the best gift anybody could have given me. And one of my friends early on told me about it when it was still a screenwriting book. And then when they came out with Save the Cat Writes a Novel, I just, I think that book is so good. And the seminar that Jessica Brody gave at your conference was so helpful. And I just think for me, it's a roadmap. Whenever I'm writing a book, I'm a big plotter. And I think it makes sure when you follow a roadmap like that, it makes sure that you get all the beats and you get all the things that have to happen to your character that the character has to develop in a certain way. And also story genius with the shard of glass. I think that's so important. And so these are just all things that I've learned as I've written each of my novels. Yeah. And people get a bit confused when we talk about quiet novels, because then they're like, okay, so the opposite of a quiet novel is a novel in which like things are exploding and these big things are happening. And and that's not what we mean at all. You could have a character who's just 
living an ordinary kind of life. They're not a spy. They're not a whatever. There's not much to differentiate them, but we need to see these earthquakes within their quiet life. And these earthquakes would not feel like big things to anyone else, but to this person, it is huge. And to this person, it's upping the stakes and these obstacles seem insurmountable. So for example, for most characters, they walk out the door, they don't even think twice about leaving their home. If you have a character who's an agoraphobe or someone who's terrified of leaving the house, just walking out the door can feel like a completely insurmountable obstacle. And so that would feel like a quiet story, but to that character, it is huge. And so like you say, hitting those story beats and just giving that quiet character these things that to them are huge really helps up the stakes, drive the tension and all of that. I also at that point didn't know the concept of a high concept novel. And so I think that helps a lot too when you're able to really understand the hook and what the publishing world and what readers are looking for, a story that is different, that has something that has that hook to it. How did you then pitch the Subway Girls to make sure that it had that hook or that it showed like the high concept story definition? I think just the nature of the Miss Subway's contest, which ran from 1941 to 1976 in the New York subway system, and it was a beauty contest. I think that right there was just made it so interesting. And I've written all of my novels about women and power and ambition and the things that hold them back. And I think I was able, I always say that I'm a contemporary women's fiction author, but sometimes I write in the past because the Subway Girls and We Came Here to Shine, I think are women's fiction. They just happen to be set in the 30s and 40s. And so I was able to take those themes that are so interesting and just wrap them around this story that's fascinating. I'm fascinated by the history of it. And they're little slices of life of New York City history, not wars, nothing that's so big that's hard to grasp, but they're fun and uplifting. And they just have these wonderful women's stories woven through. Do you still have those query letters or no? Have they been lost to time? I do. I do. I Well, I have the query letter for On Grace. I don't have one for the Balance Project because I didn't query it. And I definitely have it for the Subway Girls, which was called Miss Subways when I when I queried it. But David Duchovny came out with a book, sold a book called Miss Subways right before we put it out on submission. But yeah, you know, and it's interesting when I listen to Carly talking because I remember having to balance its dual storyline and dual time period. And I remember having to balance putting both character stories in a query and keeping it concise and all that. Would that be something you'd be prepared to share with our listeners? Absolutely. Yay. Okay. So for our Kofi supporters, I will get these from Susie and we'll put them up for our Kofi supporters so that you can take a look. Something else that I want to chat with before we finish, Susie, is when you spoke about being out on submission and getting those rejections, etc. Something I don't think we speak about enough on the podcast is how to manage the anxiety of being a writer, because I feel like you need to be sensitive to be a writer. That's what makes us writers is that we are more sensitive than other people. We pick up on things that other people don't. We feel things very deeply. And that can make the process that much harder, whether we're trying to get an agent, whether you've then got an agent and you're trying to sell the novel. Is that something you can speak to us a bit about while you were out on submission or while you were originally waiting to hear from those agents? How did you manage that? Because I think for a lot of people, they tempted to just give up 
after the rejections, they're just like, I can't handle this. I'm just going to give up. Like, how was it for you? And how was that something you were able to personally manage and, and push past? I think it helps that I'm not somebody who tends to give up on things. I tend to, when people tell me that I can't do things, I tend to want to do them more and prove them wrong. I think that I put a lot of trust into Carly. And that's something she talks about on your podcast a lot when she's looking for authors, that the trust in her is a huge part of it because I don't know how to put something out on submission. And one of the things that I think authors have to realize when you are putting your first book out is that you have zero control at that point, right? You've written the best book that you possibly can. It is now in the hands of your agent and you have to trust that your agent is going to do what he or she or they needs to do to sell that book. And you hear a lot that when your book goes out on submission, start your next book or do something and stop thinking about it. There's another thing where I wanted to hear what the editors who rejected me were saying. And sometimes they're kind enough to give the agent some feedback. And sometimes they just say it's not for us or... And I just think it helped because you learn something from each one of them. And I just kind of kept holding out hope. I don't remember. That was back in 2017. And I definitely felt like I was on edge the whole time. I feel on edge a little bit right now. And my new book isn't even out on submission. But I think it's exciting. It's almost like a game. And are you going to win the game? And I don't think that you can ever lose the game because if that book doesn't sell, then it might sell at some other point. I just think that, yes, it, it does provoke anxiety. And I think it's just a matter of how you handle those sorts of things. Yeah. I know for me, each time I would get that rejection, whether it's out on submission or from an agent, there is that huge, it feels like a kick to the stomach. There's that oof moment. Because here's the thing, when you're building up hope, and you need hope to keep continuing, but each no is a kick to that. And so you feel that intensely. And I think a part of it is allowing yourself to feel that because I'm opposed to this chronic positivity thing that we seem to have going in our culture lately. It's like the gratitude journals and the, oh, well, this is awful, but it could be so much worse. You know, I feel like we should allow ourselves to feel shitty when we're feeling shitty and then kind of pick ourselves up and then go, okay, how am I going to make this better? How am I going to fix it? Because I also think that they say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So I'm also against believing in something so much that you go, well, it will sell, but I'm not going to do anything differently. So I feel like there has to be a balance between that chronic positivity and the, well, I'm not going to change this. It's still going to sell. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, it's hard for me to put myself back into that time of 2000, early 2017 when we were trying to sell this book. And I know that every single time I got a rejection, it hurt, it stung. And I did have those thoughts of, gosh, this is never going to sell. So it's nice to think back in hindsight when it eventually did sell. And I still have those moments. I mean, when I get a, a, a royalty report and I'm not happy with my sales, or when I did get my book deal and my advance was really low. And so it does hurt because you just wonder how can you become successful in this industry? Or when you get your marketing plan from your publisher and you know you have other friends who are getting way better engines behind them. So 
it is an industry that you really have to prepare yourself for a lot of rejection if you're going to enter. Yeah. And I know for me, when something like this happens, I focus on what can I do? There's so much that I don't have control over. And that's difficult for a control freak is all the things we don't have control over. But I'm like, okay, so what can I control? And for me, my first two novels, I was really proud of them. They didn't sell really, really well because people did not want to hear about racism in South Africa when they were struggling to deal with their own racism in the US. And so for me, it was, okay, what could I pivot to? What genre can I pivot to? If people want escapism, how can I write something that people are potentially going to want to pick up? And, you know, it's four months out to publication for me. I still don't know if the book will do well. It may crash and burn. And then that's going to be incredibly disappointing. It's just to say that along every step of the way, there are things that we desperately want and there's things we hope for and there's disappointments along every step of the way. But I feel like we are writers because that is a calling. What do you say? I also think it's really important at the outset of starting any publishing career to really think about what your goals are. And if your goal is to have written a book and see it on a bookshelf or see it on a virtual bookshelf, and then you achieve that, you better think about how great that makes you feel and know that you achieved your goal. If your goal is to write about things that light you up and you do that and it doesn't give you the sales that you want, still you've accomplished your goal. And I think that unfortunately with human nature, our goals, the goalpost keeps moving, correct? And so I just feel that that's really the most important. I tell aspiring authors that all the time to just really understand what your goals are and work toward that while still always trying to increase that if that's what you want. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Susie, our time is up. I'm not quite sure how that happened. It was such a joy chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we wish you so much success with this next project. Thank you. It's been an honor to be part of this podcast, which I love so much. So thank you, Bianca. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi everyone, welcome to another comps session in which we have a fabulous bookseller who's giving you comps after you phone in and give us a bit of information about that. And today's bookseller needs no major introduction. It's Emily Summer from East City Bookshop and our listeners love her so much that they're phoning in and writing in with fan mail for her. So hi Emily and welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. This has become such a wonderful treat and I look forward to doing it every time. We look forward to hearing from you. So let's dive straight in. Here is our first request. Hello, my name is Megan Wildhood, and I I heard about your podcast from Jan Friedman's newsletter, and I'm writing a book about a rising star attorney who gets a heart transplant, and her longtime partner, who is obsessed with true crime, starts to notice behavior changes in her that follow the pattern of a cold serial killer case, one in which he believes has torn apart his formerly tight-knit family. So he now has a choice, get his beloved the help she needs so she avoids the same fate as her donor, 
or to allow her to continue down this murderous road she's on in hopes of bringing closure to his treasured family. I would love any suggestions you have for comp titles or comp authors that I might use in a query letter to agents. Thank you so much. So for Megan here at number one, I loved hearing about the true crime enthusiast and the heart transplant, a serial killer. I love a serial killer story. So I thought immediately of the author, Karen Slaughter, who writes my favorite police procedurals, but she also writes these wonderful standalone thrillers that are not police procedurals. And they are about real people who find themselves in extremely dark and challenging circumstances. So I would check out all of Karen Slaughter's standalones. The Good Daughter is one. False Witness is the most recent. She writes the best suspenseful dark thrillers. And I also thought of a book by Richard Chismer, C-H-I-Z-M-E-R, called Chasing the Boogeyman. And that one, like Megan's Comp, has a true crime enthusiast at its heart. And in Chasing the Boogeyman, a true crime writer is trying to piece together sort of what happened in a famous case that happened in his hometown. But the true crime angle of that, I think, might make sense. And it's also a serial killer story, if I remember correctly. So I would look at both of those, especially the Karen Slaughter. I just got that Karen Slaughter vibe. Amazing. Thank you, Emily. All right, here's our second one. I'm looking for comps for my realistic romantic comedy slash drama It's told from both the male and female POV, with the female a strong character who's also career-minded. It's set in the 1980s. Something like Juliet Naked sort of resonates with me, but otherwise it's, it's really movies like The Big Sick or Silver Linings Playbook, Notting Hill. Uh, or even older films like Shakespeare in Love. So I love a 1980s romantic comedy slash drama. So this seems right up my alley as well. Because the female protagonist is very career-minded, I immediately thought of the romantic comedies by Jasmine Guillory. One of the things that Jasmine Guillory does exceptionally well is writes women who have a very commanding and demanding careers. So I would look at Jasmine Guillory. She's one of the best romance writers out there today. I would also look at, we got a lot of movie comp titles for recent movies, but because this is set in the 1980s, I was thinking of classic 80s rom-com slash dramas, workplace like Working Girl, Broadcast News, and I think it's totally fair game to mention those as well. I know, Bianca, you've said that before, and I don't know that I've given TV or movie comps, but this time I found a couple that I thought there were good TV or movie suggestions that are worth mentioning. The final book suggestion I have is called The Assistance by Camille Perry, and that's Perry with an I. I loved this book. I think it flew under the radar, although she's had at least one, if not two, successful books since then. So I think it's a comp that would resonate with agents. It feels like a 1980s rom-com. It is a workplace romance, or it's a workplace comedy with a very strong and appealing, smart romance. I loved it. I think that on the cover of The Assistance, there might be a nine to five reference, but it has that feel. But it feels like it would fit right in in that 80s genre. And I loved it. So I would look at those. 
Yeah, the one of Camille's that I loved besides that was when Katie met Cassidy. Yes. That's a queer romance. So for those of you who are perhaps looking for those to comp, that was that was awesome as well. Yes, I think she's really good. Okay, third one. Hi, I'm HR Kemp. I'd appreciate help with finding comparable titles for my political conspiracy mystery thriller called Deadly Secrets. The story is the protagonist Shelley is a public servant who searches for answers when a friend, a vulnerable refugee, dies suspiciously. She uncovers a conspiracy that involves an oil company, organised crime and government corruption. Even the Prime Minister could be involved. She needs to expose the conspiracy before more lives are lost. This book doesn't have any gunfights, there's no car chases and there's no FBI, CIA or uniformed officers. So it's not a traditional political conspiracy novel. So I'm just wondering if you could give me some help with actually working out what comparable titles there might be out there. Thank you. Okay, a political conspiracy mystery thriller. I immediately thought of Stacey Abrams' mystery, While Justice Sleeps, which just came out in paperback. And yes, that is the Stacey Abrams, who is also a very accomplished writer. And in While Justice Sleeps, it is a Supreme Court sort of conspiracy theory mystery. So I would look at that one. I think that one has done better than her romances. It certainly sold like hotcakes at our store. And then maybe an even better comp is one of my favorites of last year called All Her Little Secrets by Wanda Morris. When I sold this over the holidays, and I sold a ton of it because I'm such a fan, I told people it was basically a brand new, fresh take on a John Grisham story, but with a woman at the center of the conspiracy. So like in The Firm or the early John Grisham books, in All Her Little Secrets, a woman who is counsel at a large company discovers some very nefarious dealings that go up very high. Lots of white collar crime that then turns to violent crime, but that's mostly off the page. It's not car chases and FBI agents the way that this is. It's not in our number three here, but I think both of those would be really good. And you might also want to look at the books by Jake Tapper, the news journalist. He has written some historical thrillers, but I think they also have that sort of government conspiracy angle that would be worth looking at. And yeah, because Stacey Abrams wrote her romances under a pen name, right? Yes, Selena Montgomery. Although now they've been re-released. Right. And now they're going to sell like hotcakes. Now they're going to sell like crazy. Yeah. 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 Okay. So the fourth one. Hi there. My name is Laura Vita, and I am writing a memoir looking for comparable titles in the last five years. This is a spiritual memoir, sort of a metaphysical eat, pray, love, if you will, a woman's journey, the heroine's journey. Do you know of anything like that? <laughs> I don't see anything out there right now, but if you do, I sure appreciate it. Thank you. So the the next one is Lara's memoir that she describes as spiritual and metaphysical. And I thought of several possible comps. I thought of a lot because I love a memoir. I would have to know sort of what the specific, what the specific, what the specific, you can edit that out or don't, just leave it in and let people enjoy it. What the specific spiritual journey is, you know, what leads to that journey, because I think all of these have sort of a different hook. But I thought of two very recent titles. One is Delia Efron's Left on 10th. 
And that is sort of a late-in-life romance finding oneself memoir, beautifully written. And I think, I don't know if it has the spiritual and metaphysical side to it, but it is definitely a woman finding herself in the same way that Eat, Pray, Love was sort of a post-divorce finding oneself. This one is another, where where do we go from here? Likewise, Amy Bloom's In Love, I think could possibly fit the bill depending on what the catalyst for this spiritual transformation is. I thought of The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander, H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald. Both of those are post-grief memoirs where the loss of someone has led our writer to, to write down this memoir. I thought about Lit by Mary Carr, which is one of her wonderful memoirs. It is an addiction memoir, but it has a very spiritual leaning toward the latter half of the book. It is specifically... She turns into a Catholic, which is a great surprise to her and perhaps to the reader, but it has a real spiritual element to it in the latter half of the book. And then finally, I thought of The Bright Hour by Nina Riggs, which came out a few years ago. And maybe the best comp for last is Between Two Kingdoms by Suleika Jawad, J-A-O-A-D, I believe. That one is new in paperback. I would look at all those and see which one feels like the right fit. Amazing. All right. Thanks. Next one. My name is Mary Desch. I'm looking for comparable fiction titles. I have a debut novel that's a psychological thriller closest to Alex Michaelides' work, The Silent Patient and The Maiden. Thank you. Okay. So the next one, we're looking for comps to Alex Michaelides, and I thought of several. So I I would be interested to know what elements of Alex's two books are the most resonant with this title. But without knowing that, I thought immediately of The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which might be one of those titles that's so big that it's lost all meaning for a comp. Although I do think that it immediately tells the reader of that comp that we're looking at like an academic, a classic academic spooky mystery. I also thought of The Likeness by Tana French, which is something that I recommend to the secret history readers. So if it's looking at that sort of Greek classical angle, another set on a campus vibe, can't do any better than Tana French. But for just other authors to consider, I would look at Ruth Ware, Lucy Foley, Anthony Horowitz, J.P. Delaney, Samantha Downing, which I think could be a really good one. And finally, I'm going to throw in Jennifer Hillier, who is one of my favorites. And I don't know if that'll fit or not, but I want everybody to pay attention to her. So it's worth taking a look. And can I just say Jennifer Hillier is Canadian and we do love our Canadians and we love to give them shout outs whenever we can. And I say to people that Jennifer surprises me because she looks like a small town beauty queen, like, you know, butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. She just looks so sweet and innocent and she writes these vicious Oh, yes. Books. They're so good. Yeah. I, I love so her good. books as well. Okay. Next one. Hello, I'm looking for comps for my upmarket women's fiction novel. Two people from opposite sides of town find themselves in the center of a campaign of small town gossip after a conniving neighbor sees them dancing in the subway. One of them disappears overnight as the other tidily packaged livelihood begins to unravel. Old heartaches bubble up to the surface, jealousies are revealed, but the bonds of love and friendship ultimately unite the characters in a mission to take back their lives. So the next one, oh, I love the, this sort of small town gossip, two people from opposite sides of the town. 
I loved thinking about this. And I immediately thought of a book by M.O. Walsh, which is fairly recently in paperback called The Big Door Prize. Now, The Big Door Prize is not women's fiction. Walsh is a man and several of the characters in it, this are men, but it is a wonderful small town story. And it's a story of how sort of one event and a lot of whispering can turn a town on its head. And it's a very hopeful, uplifting book in the way that this one sounds like it is where the bonds of friendship and neighborliness come together. And that's what triumphs in the end. So I would absolutely look at the Big Door Prize. I really loved it. It's a pandemic novel that I think got overlooked, but it's his second book. So I think people will be familiar with him and it would be a worthy comp. Plus it's just a great read. And then I immediately thought of Jane Rosen's Eliza Starts a Rumor, which I think you can tell by the title has some similarities. And I think it would, it seems like it would have the same fun, hopeful tone. And it's got this rumor at its heart. Wonderful. Okay, next one. Hi, my name is Danielle, and I'd love help on a comp. My manuscript is a mystery featuring a determined older Black woman who is basically overlooked and minimized by society, which is her superpower. It allows her to go unnoticed when she's solving the mysterious death of her best friend. It's set in a small Louisiana town full of gossip and intrigue. I've been calling it a sort of black murder she wrote, but I'm starting to think that maybe I need something fresher. I would love your thoughts. Thank you. Okay, next one. I love the murder she wrote comp that our writer gives us right away. I think that one is so evocative that it's worth hanging on to. But because we're talking about an older black woman and it's set in a Louisiana town, I thought of a couple other specifics. First, the books of Attica Locke. So Attica Locke writes excellent Texas mysteries. So her main character is a black detective. So not someone who's going under the radar, but I think it'll have the same sort of setting feel and it would position it as a mystery with a black heroine at its center. I also thought of When the Reckoning Comes by Latanya McQueen, which is a more subtle mystery, but it is set in a town that if it's not a small Louisiana town, it could be. It has that feel. That one is another that came out recently in the pandemic. So I would absolutely look at When the Reckoning Comes. And then finally, I don't know if this writer is familiar with Auntie Poldy by Giordano. Auntie Poldy is not in Louisiana. She is in Italy, but she's about 60 years old and she finds herself in the middle of these mystery situations and is also a sort of unassuming but very formidable main character. So I would absolutely take a look at Auntie Poldy. Also just a good, cozy armchair mystery and a great comp for Murder, She Wrote, just because of the age of the character. Do you think the Thursday Murder Club books would be good comps for this as well? absolutely do. I had that one written down as well. So thank you for reminding me. Yes, Richard Osmond's Thursday Murder Club. We've got older people in a retirement community who are armchair detectives and solving solving what's happening. Yeah, that's such a delightful series. Really, really lovely. I think we've got one more this session. Hi, my name's Ryan, and thanks for taking your time to do this. I've got a historical fiction piece I've been struggling to find comps for. It's a forbidden love story that takes place during the fall of Constantinople, which is 15th century. It's third-person limited that jumps back and forth between the two love interests. The logline goes, under siege and trapped within their own city, an aristocratic boy and epileptic girl are forced to choose between the lives they know and the future together they don't. But first they must survive. When the city is surrounded by an army and it's only a matter of time before its defensive walls fail, In order to leave their lives for each other, they'll have to find a way to escape what amounts to an inescapable city. 
Structurally, the story actually resembles the movie Titanic quite a bit in that it's a story about two people who are trying to leave their lives for each other, and it takes place within historical tragedy. The characters are 17 and beginning adulthood, has a bit of a literary focus, and is character-driven. Its tone is pretty somber, and there's a bit of a coming-of-age element involved. Thanks for your time. Wonderful. So our last one is our historical fiction set during the fall of Constantinople. I hear the fall of Constantinople. I immediately think of Anthony Doerr's latest book, Cloud Cuckoo Land. I can't think of another recent book, certainly not one that is as well-known and well-regarded as Cloud Cuckoo Land. So I think you've got to put that one in there as a comp. But then this sort of love story and survival story by these teens immediately made me think of all the light we cannot see. Again, Anthony Doerr. So I don't know if the Anthony Doerr comp will resonate with this writer, but there are aspects of, I think, both of his best known works that I hear in this comp. Obviously, you don't want to only compare yourself to one wildly successful writer. But I would also look at Ken Follett, the great Ken Follett. I think his books do a really good job of encompassing lots of aspects of historical fiction. They are historical fiction that are set way back in time, you know, centuries ago, as opposed to the typical like World War II fiction that we hear so much about. And of course, they've been very successful. So I would look at if there's a specific Ken Follett title, maybe The Pillars of the Earth, but something else could work as well. And then I would consider Matrix by Lauren Groff. So that's a 12th century novel. But if we're talking about a historical fiction with a very literary lean, we've got to look at Matrix, which is just a masterpiece. Yeah. And for our regular listeners, you'll know that we had Lauren Groff on the podcast and we had Ken Follett on the podcast, both probably our most listened to episodes that we've ever done. Yeah. If you haven't listened to those, go back and find them. Those were were really excellent interviews as well. And in terms of the Cloud Cuckoo Land, perhaps in the comp, just say the Constantinople thread of Cloud Cuckoo Land, because that's got a futuristic element that happens in space. We have a present day kind of thread as well. The story's got so many threads that run together. So perhaps just single out that particular thread so that somebody doesn't confuse it with the speculative fiction aspect of that one. Right. Emily, thank you so much. As per usual, your comps are amazing. I've added lots of titles to my to-be-read list. And we look forward to having you back next week. Thank you so much, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and -and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. 
Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.